Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Matthew Frey. He's a relationship coach who leans on the lessons of his own failed marriage to help others avoid making the same mistakes that he did. Matthew is a 43-year-old single father who is best known for his viral blog post, She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink. Frey is the author of the new book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. Welcome, Matthew. Hi. You know, before we started, I told Matthew how much I loved this book and how excited I was for this conversation because this is going to be the other side of something we talk about approximately every episode, I would say, which is the glasses left by the sink. I don't want them to bother me. In my case, it's an omelet pan that is often left. <laughs> the audience is nodding in recognition. The omelet pan is a pet peeve. I don't eat eggs, and yet there's always, always a dirty egg pan in my kitchen. Anyway, we're coming at this from the other side. So tell us what brought you to writing this book. My marriage ended in 2013. It was a decision that she'd made to leave. I didn't like it. It felt really bad at the time. And it was in 2013, the worst thing that I'd ever encountered. I was just turned 34 at the time. And so after my 34-year data sample, I was like, this is the lowest, worst, most sort of broken, dark, ugly thing I've ever known. And I have to not stay. Like it can't, every day can't feel like this, or I don't know how long I'm going to make it. And so I had to like get to work on the healing process. Most importantly, dissecting what caused the worst thing that had ever happened to me. It was really began as a selfish exercise. I needed to like figure out how to protect my future self and maybe my son to a certain extent from experiencing more loss going through something like this again. Anyway, the pieces came together as I started actually doing work that my wife wishes I would have done several years earlier. Excuse me, when I say my wife, I mean my ex-wife. In interrogating what happened, what realizations did you come to? As I was reading books, reading articles, having conversations, I feel as if I, cis, straight, white guy from middle America, had completely missed all of the lessons on relational skills. Zero humans, and I really don't want to sound like I'm passing the buck here because I'm afraid that it does sometimes, like I'm blaming teachers, parents, coaches, things like that. But living my life and being taught right from wrong and things like that, no one had ever one time really seriously talked about this idea of the things that actually cause dysfunction, conflict, pain in relationships, as I've come to understand it. And I mean, I think you can break it down to really just two ideas, and it's how poorly the average couple communicates with one another 
And I think it's how poorly the average couple behaves in a manner that communicates respect for the other. I think a lot of times it's accidental. It's sort of like this thoughtless thing that we do. The omelet pan is not a deliberate attempt to harm. It is this failure to calculate for like the emotional experience. And Amy, it's you, yes, that you experience the omelet pan? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's me. And so, right, you walk in that room and you see that and you feel a bad thing. And I simply posit that the people who love you don't leave that there so that you feel the pain that you feel. It's this, and I don't know, honestly, what the conversation around it's been because I don't, forgive me, I don't have that history or that context yet. But if you said it a bunch of times, the other human's like, I can't make sense of this. I don't know how to make my brain and body treat that with the sacredness and importance that Amy is treating it with, A. And then B, like, we don't know how to simulate the the pain that you feel. I didn't know how to correlate things like that with my relationship ending. It seemed too petty, too minor. And I don't know. I kept waiting for my wife to agree that I was like a good guy and that she was interpreting me wrong. And that's what you say. You say like, look, I'm not a person. I'm still not a person who will care about dishes left by the sink. And so when your partner would say to you, you leave these dishes by the sink and it drives me nuts. You had, I mean, we'll get to the three ways that we invalidate what somebody's saying, but your very human reaction, and it really helped me to understand it this way. It's like, I do everything right. I'm a good guy. What's the big deal? And if I just need to convince my partner this isn't actually as big a deal as she's making it, I just need to make her see it like I do, which is, who cares? I might use that glass again later, so I'm just going to leave it there. And when she understands that, then she won't be mad over this silly thing anymore. That was the sort of, I get it from your point of view, a very rational way to address that. You just don't understand that this actually isn't a big deal. So let's just stop thinking it's a big deal. Problem's over. Why doesn't that work? It sounds so awful, though, hearing it today, to be honest. I no, it doesn't. I think it sounds human. I don't think it sounds awful at all. I correlate that condition, though. What you just described, as innocent as I believed it to be 10 years ago, is the very thing that I believe causes so much mistrust and disharmony in relationships today. Not any one isolated incident of that conversation, but right. the accumulation of it over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it just destroys trust and intimacy. And so like, I cringe when I hear it. And I think there is some validity to these conversations where it's Amy's job to understand that the omelet pan lever has no ill intent. And that's sort of where the story ends. That like, well, Amy, if you could just understand that this person doesn't care about this, let it go, uptight Amy, and that is the solution to marital harmony. And what we both responded to, and I think so many people have responded to in this book, is like, wait a minute, what if the omelet pan lever had some responsibility in this story, and that the story is not just wives are always nagging, because they're wives and annoying. The criticism that I get for the blogging that I've done for the last nine years, criticism I've gotten about the book so far, which has really been pretty minor, all told, it tends to be from men I perceive to be defensive in situations not dissimilar from mine that are sort of passionately arguing for the omelet pan lever's side of the equation. Like, right. is <laughs> my desire or absence of caring about it isn't that equally valid to another human beings? And that, that's a fine debate, I think, for people to have if they really want to. I just simply make the case that if I leave evidence, if I leave the omelet pan there, if I leave the dish by the sink, if I refuse to put the toilet seat down, if I do all of these things, that I am constantly leaving evidence. And this is assuming I'm living with a human being that I've promised to love forever. And that is communicating back to me that these things suck for her, them, whoever it is. 
And if I'm going to just constantly leave these pieces of evidence that the things that matter to them don't matter to me, I suggest that it doesn't make you of ill character. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just me. I just believe trust will erode every single one of these incidents. And that the really scary part of it is it's not dangerous enough to do anything about after three days of it, after two weeks of it, because they're just minor. They're little paper cuts, they're little pinpricks. It is the collection of them over 10, 15 years and and a couple of children that tends to like, I don't know, unfairly in my estimation, fall on the shoulders of of wives and mothers most often. The guy in this case, and it isn't always the man in this behavior. And and your book, I think, does a really good job of keeping the lens wide. This happens in same-sex relationships. It's the person who's doing the invisible workload, who's the sort of default parent, I've also heard it said, is often in relationships, the woman. So it is normal, but the person isn't intentionally sabotaging. And I think what's really brave about this book is it was, you know, the death of a thousand cuts, your own marriage, and it's completely average, right? The way that your relationship ended was not remarkable. You didn't set anything on fire. There was no betrayal on a grand scale. It just was a little bit every day. And I think maybe some of the reaction to this book, like, hey, who cares about this? Is the truth of that is not something that everyone necessarily wants to recognize. I I believe strongly that it's the most common cause, the slow disconnection, the slow erosion of trust in a relationship is statistically the most common source of relationships that end, whether it's breakups prior to marriage or whether it's divorce after marriage. And that even if we want to talk about dramatic betrayals, and this is not something I talk about very much, and I allude to it a little bit in the book, there's affairs. And there's all kinds of big dramatic things that do happen in relationships. But I would still argue that they are dominoes that have fallen after these dominoes, after these little dominoes. I think that's right, generally. It's a symptom. Like, I mean, again, you've got the sociopathic narcissists that do crazy things. That's right. And whenever we talk about relationships, we have to take out of the conversation toxic, abusive people, things that are non-solvable. That's not the omelet pan. We're talking about Somebody explained it to me a long time ago. It's parallel lines. And if you just tick them apart a tiny bit, five years down the line, they're very, very far apart. It doesn't feel like a big tick when it starts. But what happens is these unexplored little paper cuts, as you say, so you're bleeding to death five years later from them. Yeah. And I think everybody gets to decide for themselves. How can it be that a voluntary activity, if we're going to talk about marriage specifically, a (laughs) voluntary activity where two people, sound mind and body, sober most of the time, voluntarily choosing their partner, how does it fail? At the rate that I talk about in the book, and it comes from social scientist Taitashiro, he says that 70% of, of marriages fail. He's like, it's the approximate half that end in divorce, and then the remainder that are miserable and dysfunctional, you know, comprised of at least one person that doesn't really want to be married. And they chalks that up in the not successful column. And I I would agree with that. Agree. Yeah. So, you know, he says about seven out of 10 of these relationships where two people, generally speaking, know the stakes and get to choose the partner like that they want to be with. I don't know. To me, this is the logical, rational explanation for how this happens at the rate that it does. We're talking to Matthew Frey. He is the author of the new book, This is How Your Marriage Ends. And we're going to talk about our hierarchy of needs and getting those met when we come back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. 
Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. So Matthew, I thought this was mind-blowing in the book. You talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes if people listening aren't familiar with it. But basically, it's like first you need food and shelter, then you need belonging. And things like self-esteem and self-actualization only get to the top of the triangle once your basic, basic needs have been met. And it really blew my mind in the book when you talked about why if your partner's in the doghouse <laughs> for something and they send you a flirty text and you're still mad, then they're like, what the heck? You know, I sent you a flirty text, right? I brought you some flowers from the yard. Why are you still mad? And you relate it back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, absolutely. So it's my belief that the erosion of safety and trust is the thing that most closely correlates with relationships that end. And once I discovered Maslow's hierarchy, I, I'm sure I learned about it in school, but I didn't remember. I relearned it in my 30s when I was you know, just trying to do all this work. <laughs> you and forgot something you <laughs> learned in school? That never happens to me. Right, imagine. I don't know what part of it jumped out at me, but it just one of my favorite things to do in this work is not take a bunch of relationship content and a bunch of like relationship therapist content and then use it. I like to take other people's content about anything, about yeah. business productivity, about random like psychology. And, and I like to use it. Anyway, I think it's such a great model for thinking about restoring trust in relationships, restoring safety in relationships. And yeah, once you like learn about Maslow's pyramid and how the hierarchy works, meaning you have to satisfy the conditions of each level of the pyramid before you start worrying about the second level, right? If you don't have air, food, water, shelter, 
you're just simply trying to get those things and you're not really worried about much else. And a level two safety. And so what I think happens is I think a lot of couples, particularly men that lack certain relational skills, are trying to reconnect with their sad, angry, disconnected relationship partners on a case-by-case basis through uh, wanting to date, physical intimacy, jewelry, all of the things that they might have done or used to do together when they were first dating, when they were first having fun and there was no problem with trust, with intimacy, with safety. And they're trying to connect on level three, level four of the pyramid, but safety has gone. Trust is gone. And it's, you know, I think a lot of people think about trust in the context of, is this person lie to me? Does this person hit me? Does this person cheat on me? And I'm really talking about trust in the context of the omelet pan. Can I trust a human being to care about the things that matter to me? And I think maybe even more significantly, can I trust that when life's hard and when I hurt, that I can say words out loud to my relationship or marriage partner and have him or her hear it, understand it and support me moving forward. And hopefully that bad or painful thing not happening anymore. And you know, the sad truth just in my relationship is that my wife could not trust me to do that. At any time I disagreed with my wife and any time somebody would want to take the opposite stance on the omelet pan, I just suggest that there's going to be a lot less trust with that person. If the person's going to fight, it's not, again, it's one thing to sort of like mindlessly, thoughtlessly leave it in a quote unquote innocent way. And it's another thing entirely to sort of refuse to participate in something on behalf of someone else. The omelet pan lever needs to understand why does it matter so much? So explain to us, because I think you explain this very clearly. When you leave your socks on the floor, I feel like you don't love me. Like explain where that person's point of view is coming from to somebody who for whom that doesn't make any sense. In my coaching work today, I talk about just two key ideas and everything is about trust restoration in the relationship. And the first habit that I talk to people about is validation. And we might get to that. It's that conversation pattern that I think is so dangerous for trust erosion and why my wife couldn't trust me when something hurt. She couldn't even tell me about it because I would always come back at her with something that communicated I didn't get it or I wasn't going to. But the second one and the one that you're asking about is this idea of consideration. I must consider my relationship partner when I make decisions. I must be able to accurately calculate for what she's going to experience when she hears words I say, when she sees me perform an action, when she walks into a room to find whatever evidence I left behind for her, whether that's laundry or the toilet seat up or toothpaste spittle on the mirror or a dish by the sink or an omelet pan with egg crusties on the stove. I have to be able to accurately calculate for that and then care enough to like protect her from having that experience. It's not protect. I don't mean to like speak about her like she's some like dainty waif that needs like a big tough guy to protect her. It's it's about respect. It's about like honor and trust. I'm not going to allow my wife to walk in this room and find this evidence that I just don't think she matters. That me leaving this stupid pan or this glass or the toilet seat up matters more to me than she does. And I just frankly think it's like that simple. And what I think happens in most relationships is the person in the situation that feels hurt by these things is married to somebody who doesn't think about it at all. I don't believe it's a deliberate act. I believe they've failed to develop mindfulness and a mental habit and relate it to their relationship, that they haven't correlated the idea of the toilet seat or the pan or the dish as being relevant to how the other human feels and to the quality of our relationship together. I just think that's the miscalculation because they're all seem so minor. They all seem so easily dismissed. 
But it is ability to have that communication, the letting down of like, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, and being able to hear the next step. I have certainly had this conversation with my husband where I have said, when you leave the socks or whatever the different uh, husband crime is being committed at the time, that it makes me feel like you see me as the maid in the house and the person who just exists to clean the house. That conversation really changed his behavior. But it's that piece not coming back with like, but this doesn't matter. It's like the Mother's Day conversation of when you forget my birthday and Mother's Day, it's the one day of the year where I'm not in charge of doing stuff for other people. And you notice that the 300 other days where it's your mom's birthday, your dad's birthday, your cousin baby reveal or whatever it happens to be, we're always there with a gift, on time, with an appropriate card. And so when that doesn't get returned to me on two days of the year, and I will say having had that conversation in very stark terms and laying that out was incredibly effective in my marriage and it made a huge difference. But It's that piece of of having the partner not go to the place of, but this isn't important to me. So you have to let it go because you're the person who's uptight. Shout out to my newish friend, Eve Rodsky, who wrote the excellent book, Fair Play. I don't know if either of you have read it. We've had her on the podcast. We'll link to that episode. She's incredible. Yeah, she's so good. And she opens the book with the story of her and a bunch of her friends getting together on a Saturday or Sunday morning for a fundraising walk for breast cancer. And then they were all going to go out together for like mimosas or something afterward. But what happened was while they were on this fundraising walk, all of their husbands were back home with the kids. And every one of them was getting text messages about where does this child need to like be at what time for this practice or this game? Where do I find the hair product or the clothes they need? They couldn't even go out like two thirds of this group of friends that never have time to like get together have to go like rescue their families and their husbands. And it all felt so like I've seen that, you know, right? A hundred times growing up in small town, Ohio, I've seen things just like that. And I took it for granted. That's just what mom does. Moms just go and do that. And it just, the sort of inherent disrespect and unfairness of that dynamic was totally lost on me until I got really serious about, I need to develop knowledge, awareness, relational skills in order to not accidentally hurt people. I'm saying out loud that I care about If that doesn't get translated afterward, then like, what do those words even mean? I have to behave in a manner that mathematically results in those people feeling loved, respected, considered. And I just didn't know how to think about it back then. I guess I thought my word should have been enough. Yeah. And it's changing the conversation. And I think importantly, it's changing the conversation for men that the conversation is not, oh, my nagging wife is such a drag to, wow, this person I love is struggling and having a hard time. And it seems that I have a role in that. I don't think husbands who opt out or boyfriends or whoever, relationship partners who opt out of that process, I don't think that makes them bad people. Sure. Ever. There's a, I think chapter two of the book is good people can be bad spouses. I really want to disassociate the notion of good, bad, or character from the conversation. I just argue that it's harmful. Harmful to the relationship and perhaps to the other person in a very specific way. And again, I'm not hurt by the dish by the sink. So I still put a dish by the sink. And what by the dish, I really mean a glass that I put like the tiniest bit of tap water in each morning (laughs) to take like vitamins and supplements. That's It's not like a crusty dish. 
This is me and my yeah. relationship. I'm the monster. Like, I am the person who my husband at some point <laughs> comes to my desk and collects the 46 dishes. Yeah, sometimes the dish lever is the mom. Yeah. Right. It's the work is not, I agree that the dish by the sink matters. The work is, I'm aware that it matters to this person I've promised to love. And I'm going to do whatever I can to mitigate scenarios, to eliminate scenarios from our lives in which she's experiencing evidence to the contrary, that I don't care. And I just think that's what all of those things communicate, that I simply don't care and you cannot count on me. You can't trust me to know what does and does not hurt you. I'm aware of what feels good and feels bad to you. It's just a series of I didn't knows and I'm going to keep doing it my way. And very good people can do that. They're just failing to accept responsibility within the relationship in the same way they do probably at their jobs and in other facets of their lives. We have all sorts of practice for getting better at things and accepting some feedback and adjusting the way we do things. Oh, I want to drill down on that after the break. We're talking to Matthew Frey, the author of This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships, and we'll be right back. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. This is another conversation that I have had, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have had, where I would say to my husband, at work, I know that when you get in trouble, you change your behavior. I know that at work, if you, your boss were to tell you every day, this thing you're doing is unacceptable, you would be able to change that because you have a boss who you report to, and that person would not be like, oh, you know, you don't say to your boss, it doesn't matter to me, I'm sorry. You change your behavior and you fix things at work. And I feel like that conversation really helped him to understand like, oh, this is changeable. 
And that's right. But you're not his boss, so that's where it gets complicated, right? It's charged. Yes, you don't want to be his boss, but at the same time, like, I see evidence that he's able to fix behavior that is unpleasant to other people. Right. But I agree with Amy that the men that criticize my work, the same group of people would have latched on to the boss analogy, which is why I would have probably said something like, if you're on some sort of like committee or project team at work, and there's like three or four people, and there's deadlines, that you'd take that seriously, that you'd like, you know, you wouldn't let the other two or three people down to get your part done, even if, who knows, even if you didn't think the deadline was, if you thought it was arbitrary, right? Sure. Work has a lot of arbitrary deadlines that don't, they're not life or death, but somebody decided we need to hit some certain date. So we do it. There's so many examples of people who understand that in order to get skilled at something, in order to do something well, you have to learn and you have to practice like new skills in order to develop expertise or mastery of something. And, and I just think if we're going to talk about heterosexual relationships, men have spent their entire lives working on those things in sports and music and art and whatever their hobbies and crafts and professional pursuits were. And for some reason, I don't see like that same thought process and drive applied to relationships, which I think the vast majority of those guys would tell you sit atop their personal values. List. Right. That's right. But I value my marriage, that I value my family above all things. Yet their behavior in a measurable way has you know been a lifetime dedicated to skill building and knowledge building about all of these other things. I can tell you so much more about arbitrary like <laughs> sports facts with like the NBA and the NFL, particularly when I was married. Right. I mean, I'm actually worse today because I spread my like places I give my attention to more thin than I used to or wider. And, but I couldn't tell you why the dish by the sink mattered. I couldn't tell you why what my wife had experienced as the youngest of two children in her home and the way that she didn't feel heard and listened to and the way she sometimes felt made fun of by her big brother and that her parents didn't like back her up and support her, how that contributed emotionally and psychologically to dynamics between us. Stuff I get at age 43 today nine years removed from my marriage and things that I had no context for and apparently no motivation oh, to try to understand back then. Just kept waiting for her to fix her feelings. Can we talk, I just want to make sure we pivot to solutions so this doesn't just feel like, well, this is an unsolvable problem and men don't get it. <laughs> so there are lots of solutions in this book and this book is a mindset shift that is already really helping me. So can you tell us what is the most important thing that we need in our relationships to succeed? To me, trust is the condition that we need most. I think a lot of people think about love being so important. And I suggest to people that relationships end between two people who love each other Yeah, daily, thousands, thousands and thousands. I believe trust correlates most closely with what we need for longevity and the inverse being the erosion of trust is the greatest predictor of a relationship that will end or at least feel really, really bad. And then if we're going to talk about like a skill, needed to do that, to execute that. I mean, I really think empathy, intentional empathy, right? There's people that are sort of like natural feelers. There's people who sort of naturally aren't. They're like more of the engineering types and they don't feel naturally. Married to an engineer right here, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean to suggest they're bad. It's not like you're a wrong human being because your organic like emotional experiences are somehow different than someone else's. I just think about empathy as this like intentionality, this I'm going to calculate accurately 
for the experience that other person's having. And maybe it's more difficult for someone who doesn't have a frame of reference for what some of those bad things feel like. But I got to believe most people feel on some level. No, but I do think there's a difference between attitude and behavior, what you feel and how you behave. And my example is that my husband is an engineer and he goes to work and he starts coding and he goes all the way down the rabbit hole. And like my mom was dying and I'm not getting a call every day. And I'm like, you should be checking in with me. I'm in this very difficult situation. And he's like, my problem is that I go and I go down the rabbit hole and then I look up and it's five o'clock and like, I thought it was 8 a.m. And so he started in something that we worked out together, setting an alarm on his phone every day at 11 o'clock and calling home when that alarm went off. He's still deep in the rabbit hole, but he made a fix to his behavior because he heard that I had a need. And I think sometimes we get lost in the thing of, I want you to love me enough to call every day. It's not a lack of love. It's truly a lack of setting an alarm. And that some of these fixes don't feel big and romantic, but he was missing the piece of the day where he took behavior and it was a pretty simple fix. Yeah. I don't know what to say to the person that says, I want you to organically be able to adjust your personality and the way your brain works in order to just experience the world exactly as I do. That's right. But I think we get stuck there. I'm a big believer in calendars and alarms. It has changed my life. The work is, I like to talk about the example of the busy mom. When I talk about this idea of consideration, the busy mom who has a business presentation, she has to give on Friday. And so on Monday night at dinner, she asks her husband, can you be home with the kids? I've got to go take three, four hours and do final prep on this thing that I've got on Friday. He's like, yeah, no problem. It's fine. I've got it. And then Thursday rolls around. A couple guys fly in from Germany, from some other plant or something, and then they're all going to go out for dinner and drinks afterwards. And it totally slipped his mind. So he's texting his wife and is like, hey, I'm going to be a couple hours late tonight. And then she gets mad at him and he realizes the mistake. And what I like to talk to clients about is like, even if he instantly says, guys, I'm so sorry, I've got to get going. I made a prior commitment that I'd forgotten about, gets home. It's only maybe five, 10 minutes difference. And his wife got everything logistically that she'd wanted. Trust still eroded. It was still evidence that she didn't matter enough to prioritize that Thursday evening like thing. And so the work, the difference between me when I was married is I would have been the guy getting mad that she got mad at me. When I still came home after, it's like, I'm really sorry. I'm a human being. I forgot. Where now it's like, I'm really sorry that I didn't even prioritize putting it on my calendar to make sure I didn't schedule anything, that I didn't treat that the same way I treat my meetings and my appointments that I have. To me, that's the work. That goes so much further than the sort of sheepish grin or like, oh, come on, are you still mad at me? You know, the hug from behind while you're brushing your teeth. (laughs) That's all nice. But what you really need, I had a conversation recently with my partner about something that he sort of had checked out at a time that was intense. And he said something to me about, I really did compartmentalize. You're right. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I do that sometimes. I need to think about that. But you're right. And that is worth a thousand Hallmark greeting cards to me. Or flowers, right. Right. To hear, you know, or shoulder rub in the kitchen while you're washing the dishes. You know, to know that your partner's like, gosh, I need to look at this. Hmm. Not like, I promise I'll change and I'll never disappoint you emotionally again, but just, hmm, I need to explore this is such a big step. And I think these people who are floundering, like, oh, how do I make it up to her? They just say, wow, I hear what you're saying is a lot. I also want to put in people's path the reminder app on your phone. 
I say to my husband now, every single time we have this discussion, do you remember it's your mom's birthday on Friday? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to forget that. Say to your phone, reminder for four days beforehand. Maybe it's not my job, but like the reminder app has saved my marriage. The reminder (laughs) goes off at four o'clock. And when the people are coming on the plane, he's like, I can't meet you. I have to be at home. And I think that you can solve when you have the trust of like, I know you're not trying to do this to me on purpose. You can find solutions to stay on the same team. And for me, the reminder app, people, it's been a marital saver. But you still have to remind him to set the reminder app. There's acceptance there. Yeah. Listen, I have accepted that my husband and like he has to clean up my many, many glasses that I use. I have 10 glasses on my desk right now. He's going to come in tonight and clean them up. At a certain point, people do have operating systems. I want to make him a non-engineer who like sees the world on a calendar like I do. Never going to happen. And he wants to make me a neat person. Never going to happen. Together, in the spirit of trust, we find some solutions where it's like, okay, let's work with each other's horrific flaws that were not disclosed to us when we were dancing at nightclubs and making out. Let's find some solutions together. I think that you can do that when there's trust. (laughs) Right. And I think when one person feels constantly, willfully neglected, that you can't, that symbiotic relationship is not tenable. The second half of the coaching work, if you will, it's this idea of consideration. And I'll try to like briefly talk about it a little bit more. Average wife, mother that I've encountered in this work, again, in the so-called heteronormative relationship, feels as if every single day, I calculate for myself, I calculate for my husband, I calculate for all of my kids, however many I have. That's all the Mm -hmm. things. And I factor all of these people in their various wants and needs and medical conditions and birthdays and lunch preferences and sports calendars and whatever they do in life. I factor all of that in 100% of the time into all of my decisions to ensure that I am like just helping to facilitate, meet everybody's needs, get dinner on the table, get the kids to school on time, whatever. But then I'm married to somebody who doesn't do that. He is frequently, in so many of his decisions, there's evidence he was the only variable that he considered. And then he did something. Uh, He wasn't trying to be mean. It's not about neglect or abuse per se. I know that he loves me. He's an amazing father. He just frequently makes decisions where he doesn't think about how they might roll downhill and impact me or the children or whoever. And so when you're somebody in that situation, you're left with two conclusions. Either I'm married to somebody who knows what hurts me and what doesn't, and then chooses to go his own way anyway, because he doesn't care enough. That's the worst possible outcome. And the best possible outcome is that I'm married to somebody who doesn't think about me at all. I'm married to somebody where so much of his day is spent with me completely, I might as well not exist. And maybe not everybody really cares about that idea, but I think a lot of people, particularly wives, mothers that give so much of themselves to their family, to their marriage, really feel abandoned and small and invisible and unheard. I remember being at work and just being at work. And it's not that my wife didn't cross my mind. Of course she did. But man, I sure wish I would have done a better job of checking in with her. I sure wish I would have done a better job when we were out at a party together, when we were hosting events at our place. Just living in those moments with her instead of whatever I was doing. I just didn't do a lot of the things that I think you're supposed to do. So anyway, that's consideration is the capacity to calculate for somebody else to mindfully, habitually all the time on autopilot. Your new default setting is I think about my relationship partner and I do things that make their lives better. And I intentionally don't do things that make their lives worse because I truly know them on like a nuanced level. 
I just think that's so critical. I like that phrase, new default setting. That's useful. I have to talk about it in habit form because I don't want people to feel like I'm judging them or attacking their character. I don't think people are bad. I think people have habits that inadvertently harm their relationships. And I want people to consider that there's like a new way to do it. And a habit is to me, the easiest way to do a difficult thing. You practice doing something different and you do it consistently on purpose over several days. And then it becomes the new way you do things. And it's a really simple way to talk about neuroscience, but it's also the way that it works. And so I want to be considerate on autopilot on my default setting because I was not a naturally considerate person. I'm a naturally thoughtless, selfish, only child, ADHD guy. And if I don't mindfully practice the habit of considering the person that I'm claiming to love, they're not going to experience it as love and respect. And I understand that today in a way I didn't when I was married. But I think the thing that kills us that we haven't talked about too much yet is invalidation. I think the thing that's really scary is this condition of not being considered happens all the time and predominantly on accident, I believe. But then the aggrieved party, the person who feels hurt, goes to their partner. And it's usually, again, in heterosexual relationships, the wife coming to the husband and saying, hey, this thing happened and it sucked for me. It hurt. And then that conversation, if the husband doesn't just automatically agree with his wife's like analogy or her emotional experience, it goes really bad. Give us a brief version of that because there's sort of three things you can do to invalidate. Tell us what those three things are. Yep. It's the invalidation triple threat, I call it. I believe it's the three ways on autopilot. We invalidate people, not because we're trying to invalidate them, but it's the math result of the conversation. The math result is invalidation. And it happens when we disagree. And so my wife used to come to me and she'd say, Matt, a bad thing happened and it feels bad. And I would disagree. Version one is I would disagree that the thing happened that she said happened, <laughs> right? She's like, you know, and then Janet said something and it was really rude. And and I'm like, she didn't say that or she didn't mean that or something like that. I would like challenge her like version of events. Anyway, the math result of that is your feelings don't matter because it's based on something that isn't real. Version two of the invalidation triple that wife would come to me and say, Matt, a bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. And this time I'd like, okay, that's what happened. But why are you making such a big deal out of it? Like that is not something you should be feeling sad or angry or afraid of. In version one, your brain's wrong, you're crazy or you're dumb, I guess would be the implications. Version two is your emotional calibration's wrong. You're weak. You're hypersensitive is the math result of that conversation. Version three is simply defensiveness. Wife would say, Matt, you did something that hurt me. And I'd be like, wait, let me explain. Like, if you understand, like, what I believed and what I was trying to accomplish, you won't be mad at me anymore. And defensiveness is just so harmful because we invalidate the emotional experience, A, but then B, we imply we'll do it again. Somebody says, I hurt because you did this. And then we spend our time arguing why it was so, like, smart or good or meritous that we did it. (laughs) I think the implication is, well, I don't really care how you feel. (laughs) I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, because I was right to do that. That doesn't make you bad. It makes you someone who your partner is going to say, do I want to spend the rest of my life where every time I feel hurt by something, I have to have the approval and the permission and the rubber stamp of my relationship partner in order to feel validated and understood and cared about? Or am I going to volunteer for the rest of my life to be told that I'm stupid, that I'm weak, that I'm crazy, or that regardless of my thoughts and feelings, he's going to do whatever he wants anyway, or they're going to do whatever they want anyway. Again, I'm not trying to pick on men. It just most commonly shows up with men and the most exceedingly decent men can find themselves on the invalidating end of this conversation. It's not trying to cause harm. It's inadvertently causing harm. 
Matthew's book is called This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. Read it. Have your partner read it. It is an amazing book. Matthew, tell us where people can find you on the internet. Thank you. My home on the web is matthewfray.com. And then all the links to the various social channels are there. If anybody decided they wanted to follow me there, that'd be amazing. Love it. One-stop shopping. We love to see it. Matthew, this was such a great conversation, such a great book. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.